Malachi chapter one. We've been going through the book of Malachi in our church back home, and I hope to bring a message that will be a help and a challenge to all of us tonight. Malachi chapter one, and we'll read from verse one down to the end of the chapter. Malachi one, verse one, the Bible says, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified. From the border of Israel. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts unto you. O priests that despise my name, and ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread on mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the, bl- the blind for sacrifice, is not it evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? saith the Lord of hosts. And now I pray you beseech God and he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons? saith the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted. And the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. He said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. Ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus have ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts. My name is dreadful among the heathen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the service and what you've done in our hearts already thus far, the ministry of the word and the opportunity to give and just what we're praying for as a church body. And as we come to this time to study your word, would you fill me with your spirit's power, enable me to clearly and boldly declare your truth tonight. Would you have your way in the hearts of these dear folks? Lord, would you feed their hunger as they come out on a Sunday night to study and hear from you? Would you meet with us? Would you be honored and glorified? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to preach tonight defiled sacrifices on God's altar. Defiled sacrifices on God's altar. You know, I heard a preacher joke one time while before the offering time. He said, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, but I love any kind of giver. You just come bring the money and I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy it. And, and uh, that's, that's the way it is, I, I guess, sometimes when we understand what a ministry takes. But seriously speaking, we want to make sure when we're doing something for God, first of all, we're doing what's right and we're doing it the right way. Amen. We're doing what's right and we're doing it the right way. 
Here, God is using this man, Malachi, to bring this message to Israel. Who is this man, Malachi? Heard a joke one time of an, the Italian convert, new believer, came to church so excited one Sunday and said, hey, I'm so excited. Why are you so excited? I found an Italian prophet, Malachi. <laughs> said, no, it's, it's Malachi. Malachi is an interesting prophet. In fact, for centuries, there was traditions going around that he wasn't really a person. He was an angel. Pastor Dalzell, I've never been accused of someone reading my writings and saying an angel must have written this. But that's what some people thought his name literally comes from the Hebrew word malak, which is messenger, which can also be translated angel. But he's not an angel. He's a person. He was a prophet, a messenger of God. That means God gave him a message and he went to the people to deliver that message. That's who he was. And so this prophecy begins very interestingly. Really, it's a rebuke. The entire book of Malachi is a rebuke, but it starts off with this premise, that God has a unique covenantal love for his people. He starts it off in verse number one. He says, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, verse two, I have loved you, saith the Lord. I have loved you. How many tonight are thankful that God loves you? Isn't it a blessing to teach our children that God loves you? That mom and dad love you, but God loves you. You know, many of us, maybe you work with people, maybe in teaching, or maybe even in ministry, especially in ministry, you encounter people that have grown up in family situations where they just didn't feel loved. Or some people grew up in family situations, maybe people even in this room tonight, where love was given and withdrawn, given and withdrawn. And when you performed right, then love was given. And when you didn't perform, that love was withdrawn. Can I just tell you tonight, God is not like that. He loves you unconditionally. He could never love you more and he can never love you less. When you came to Jesus Christ, you entered into a bond, a covenant relationship with God. And he loves you not because of who you are, by the way, but because of who he is. And he tells the Israelites, the people of Judah, I have loved you. I am your covenant God. I have pledged myself to you. And I have this distinct, unique love for you. And this distinct, unique love demanded distinct faithfulness in return. And you'll remember during this time, if you compare Malachi, read the book of Nehemiah, that'll really help to kind of fill in the gaps. But the children of Israel had been in bondage and slavery for 70 years in Babylon. And God, by his mercy, brought them back into the land. He brought a faithful remnant back into the land. They rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And they experienced a measure of revival. But then they began to depart from the truth. Isn't that how it works sometimes? God's blessing, revival taking place. The devil tries to get in there. And they began to slide back and they began to be enticed by the pagan women in the land and, and marrying these pagan women, divorcing the wife of their youth to marry these pagan women. Uh, the true worship of God, forsaking that for worshiping the false gods of the people around them, or even worse, bringing in elements of the false worship into the temple, trying to syncretize and, well, we'll just blend and God will accept it, right? God will be okay with that, won't he? No, he won't. And so they come in and they, they, they're experiencing this revival, but yet they've left their first love. And so now God must rebuke them. And I want you to understand that Malachi is writing at a very critical point in time. He's writing to a faithful, a small, but a very important remnant. There were several million Jews that were in captivity in Babylon. 
And the records of Nehemiah tell us that only about 50,000 returned back to the land. That's a very small remnant, statistically speaking, right? And so the, the picture here is this, these are the faithful ones. These are the good guys. These are the ones that are spiritual leaders. These are the ones that all the future hopes and promises, promises of Israel rest upon. If they blow this, it's all over. If they don't serve God now, they could lose everything. And tonight, please don't misunderstand me. I want us to understand that we are in that same place tonight. We are a remnant. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we're the only church serving God in this town. I'm not saying only the people in this room love God. But I am saying this, we are not a majority. God doesn't need a majority, by the way. But we are not a majority. We are a remnant of people. And we have this slice of time, this opportunity that God has given to us. Let me ask you a question. If people, if you don't go and share the gospel here in Manteca, who else will? If you don't share the gospel with your neighbors, who else will? If you don't invite your, your coworkers to Easter Sunday, who else will? Are we waiting on the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons? Who else will? God wants to use a faithful remnant, no matter how small or large, but he always works with a remnant. And we have to understand that you have been tasked. You've been uniquely called and placed, I believe, in this church for this moment. And God gives a rebuke to the people of Israel in their day that we need to take heed of today also. I'm going to start preaching now. That was my introduction. Number one, number one, God emphasizes his divine love. I mentioned God starts it off. Verse two, I have loved you. But you know, the people were so cold and so calloused. They reply back, really? How have you loved us? God, do you really love us? Wherein hast thou loved us? It's the kind of question that is rarely spoken out loud, but if we're being honest, is often harbored in hearts that get discouraged. And we say, God, if you really love me, then why are things the way they are in my life? God, are you really there? God, do you really care? How often do those thoughts creep up in our hearts? Malachi pointed out that God had loved Jacob and had hated Esau. And I want to give clarification on what that means. But first, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 in our Bibles, would you? Deuteronomy chapter 7. Malachi, God is emphasizing his divine love by emphasizing their position. He says, recognize your position. Recognize who you really are. And tonight, if you ever come to the point in your life where you doubt God's love, remember your position in Christ. Here's what God told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And God is saying, listen, don't you understand who you are? Really, don't you understand who I've made you to be? You're my covenant people. I'm your covenant God. I love you not because of who you are, but because of who I am. I am a faithful God, a covenant-keeping God. Recognize your position. And tonight, I hope we understand that because we're in Christ, 
The Bible literally says we have assurance of God's love. We are accepted in the beloved. You know, with God, you don't have to perform to be accepted. You simply trust in Jesus Christ and you're automatically accepted in the beloved. Now, here's what that does not mean. That does not mean, well, God always is going to love me so I can go out and do whatever I want to do. sow my wild oats and just sin against him. I believe if you think like that, you may not even be saved, honestly. Because the way the Apostle Paul put it said, for the love of Christ constrains me. When you understand how much God really loves you, that's not freedom to do whatever you want to do. No, it's freedom to do what God wants you to do. And Paul says, I'm so constrained and bound up, I can't go off in sin. I have to preach. I have to serve the Lord because he loves me. And so God's love for us is where it starts. And we recognize that because of our position. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is and who he's made us to be in Christ. Remember that, in Christ. Are you in Christ? I'm glad that you're in church. A lot of people are in church here in America. A lot of children grow up in church. But are you in Christ? Have you repented of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus alone for salvation? When you come to Christ, he gives you full forgiveness, washes the slate clean. He gives you everlasting life, once saved, always saved. He prepares a destiny for you in heaven. All of the riches of heaven that belong to Jesus Christ also belong to you and me because we're in Christ. God's divine love for us because of our position, it says it all. And here God reminds the Israelites that they had a special place because of Jacob and the Israelites compared to Edom and the Edomites. And the eyes of the people would see how Edom was desolate and judged, and they would acknowledge the greatness of God and the faithfulness of God. So God asked Israel to find assurance in his choosing of them as his people. And again, the application for us, we can be assured if we're in Christ, we're secure. We're saved forever. Now, the question then becomes, how could God hate Esau? I thought the Bible says, for God so loved the world. And so what does it mean when the Bible says, for I, I, I loved Jacob, but yet I hated Esau? Malachi 1, verse 3. Well, you got to realize that there was a Jewish expression in those days. It used the word hate for comparison. It's the idea of love less. Here's an, here's an example. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke 14, 26, if you're going to be my follower, you have to be willing to hate your father and your mother. Now, what was he teaching? Is he teaching you break the Ten Commandments and don't honor your parents? No. He's saying you ought to have such a, a commitment and unique love for me that everything else pales in comparison. And so God is saying, listen, in comparison to Edom, I have loved you and hated them. And again, God is emphasizing this to give them assurance of their position as his people. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. Spurgeon replied, that is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. God's people said, amen to that. Number two, number two tonight, defiled sacrifices on the altar. God loves his people, but they haven't loved him back. Verse six, another question is given. Fathers, masters, they have, they deserve honor and respect. And God says, where's my honor? Where's my respect? Where's my fear as your covenant-keeping God, the God who loves you? And God rebukes them for dishonoring him with their sacrifices. You know, what we bring to God matters. Our worship matters to God. Again, we need to make sure we're doing it, doing the right thing and doing it the right way. They ask this question, how have we despised your name in verse 6? 
God says, you're, you're presenting defiled bread. You're bringing, you're bringing defiled offerings upon my altar. The emphasis here is the holiness of God's altar. Now, you can't just bring anything to God's altar. It's a holy place. It deserves fear, reverence, honor. The Bible teacher S. Lewis Johnson notes the reason he calls the sacrifices here bread is the imagery of food. It's because God feeds upon the sacrifices in the sense that he gets great delight and enjoyment from these offerings and from these sacrifices. They represent and symbolize the ministry of the Lord Jesus and God delights in Jesus. And this, this by the way, gives us perspective on what true worship really is. Because so, so many people are confused by this, even in our fundamental circles. Because worship is not about you and me. Offerings are not about you and me. You know, I'm so thankful the vision that God has given Pastor Dalzell to, with the expansion of this property, of this building, and this ministry. Hope you understand you're not doing it for Pastor Dalzell. I believe he's a great man, a great leader. God's given him great vision. But you're not doing it for him. You're doing it for the Lord. See, worship is about who we're giving the worship to. It's to the Lord. It's not to, well, what do the, what do the pagans like? Let's cater it to the pagans. No, it's our holy God who we revere, who we love. Let's cater it to him. What brings him delight? What brings him enjoyment? And yes, we will be refreshed too, but what brings him delight and enjoyment? That's where we start with worship. And so it's called defiled bread because God couldn't be satisfied by this, by these offerings. See, the sacrifices were meant to point to Jesus. You see, there was the the meal offering, which represented the character and work of Christ. There was the peace offering, which represented the reconciliation between a, a holy God and sinful man. There were the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, which all signified the atonement, Jesus Christ as our substitute. These are all beautiful pictures pointing to Jesus Christ. And so the fact that they were bringing defiled sacrifices, blind, lame, sick, completely marred the imagery here, completely distorted the picture. So God was, was disgraced by this. And so again, we can rejoice tonight. You didn't, aren't you glad you didn't have to bring a lamb to church tonight? Because the book of Hebrews tells us that we have a once for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. You know, one thing about the Old Testament sacrifices, they had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. And there was one piece of furniture that was not present in the Old Testament temple, but that is present in the temple up in heaven. It is a chair because Jesus Christ is our great high priest, offered up his blood in a once for all sacrifice. Amen. And the Bible says in words we can never truly understand, he sat down at the right hand of the father. His work was complete. Amen. Salvation is available for all who come to Jesus Christ. Again, are you in Christ tonight? You see, this is a beautiful picture here where they were distorting it. You brought the blind. You brought the lame, these sick animals. And this is evil. The Old Testament taught they were to bring offerings that were without spot, without blemish. And, and to make matters worse, the leaders, the priests, they were the ones that were really condoning all of this. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And the leaders were spiritually uh, not following the Lord as well. And so God is really dealing with the leaders here. Again, worshiping God the wrong way. The problem here also is that they were bringing, they were offering to God that which really didn't cost them much. The other issue God is bringing out is that there was no thought behind this. 
There was a casual nature to this. There was just kind of a humdrum, here we go again, business as usual mentality. And they were bringing something to God that really didn't cost them much. It was sick animals that they had no use for. They, well, let's, uh, we have no use for this sick little guy over here. Let's bring him to God. Well, uh, I can afford to give this without feeling it too much. Why don't we try giving until we do feel it? Why don't we actually sacrifice for our God who loves us with an unconditional love, who's pledged himself to us because of Christ? Well, I guess I could carve out 10 minutes before I go to sleep tonight to pray, fall asleep halfway through. See, they, weren't, they were serving God in a way that was convenient, but it dishonored God. See, convenience can't be part of the equation when it comes to worshiping God. We don't serve God out of convenience. It is always a sacrifice. Can we be honest tonight? You could be at work right now earning money. Uh, you, could, you could bank that tithe. We could say, we could even invest your tithe. Don't even tithe. And, uh-oh, don't tithe and invest it in the stock market. And in 10 years, what will that be? Who knows how much that'll be, right? We got some, some math folks in here. They can tell us and, and have a lot of money. But we realize who our God is. We realize all that he's done for us. He's sacrificed for us. And so it's just a little thing to say, Lord, I'm going to sacrifice for you. Lord, because you're worthy. Again, worship is all about the worthiness of God. We're ascribing to God, Lord, you are worthy. We honor you. We reverence you. We exalt you. That's what worship is. See, they were guilty of holding back on God. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. We're not farmers, most of us, I assume, in this room tonight, but we tithe off the gross, amen? Not the net. Yes, we, we give to the Lord in return of what he's blessed us with. And in fact, we, we can give out of the abundance, out of the overflow. But I like the thought Pastor Dazel shared the other night. We can also give as a sacrifice out of our need, out of our want. It's a sacrifice to give. But we determine we're going to give God the very best. Doesn't God deserve what's best? He does not deserve the table scraps of your life. He does not deserve the leftovers of, well, here's what's left for you, God. It ain't much, but Lord, here you go. But he, de- he deserves our very best. Amen. The best of our time. We can talk about our, our schedule, our weekly schedule, but what about our lifetime? I'm preaching to some teenagers that you think, well, I'll serve God later after I've had a family, earned an income, got my career going, then I'll start to serve God. Oh, really? When your back starts hurting and you start to forget, get a little forgetful and kids are driving you crazy, that's when you're going to start to serve God. Some people, they want to wait to the very end of their life when I retire. Then I'll really start serving God. We say, Lord, you can have just the table scraps of my life, our time, our talent, our treasure. And it's interesting here. The Bible rebukes them and says, try, try offering these offerings you're bringing to me. Try offering them to your governor as taxes and see what they'll say. In other words, you have more respect for your earthly leaders than your heavenly father. And can I say this also tonight? As Christians, we have more common sense in what we're willing to give to, to Apple or Samsung than what we want to give to the Lord. We have more sense of what we want to pay Toyota or Chevy or Ford if you buy American. Amen. We have more sense of what we'll get to them. Well, you know, that is a nice car. It's worth it. You know, this is the latest model of the phone. And so it's worth it. When it comes to giving, oh, I don't know if I can do that. Coming to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Coming out to bust soul winning and giving my time to help clean the church. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. May God help us. 
Heard a story of a little girl. Her parents gave her $2. Said $1 for your offering. $1 you can spend on whatever you like. And on her way walking to Sunday school, walking to church, a gust of wind blew by and one of those dollars slipped out of her finger and blew away. She said, oh, God, there goes your dollar. <laughs> she wanted to keep that extra dollar, maybe buy some candy. Sometimes we act like that as Christians too. We try to see how, how little can we give to God and keep and hoard for ourselves. But that's not what worship is. That's not what giving is. It's, Lord, we want to give you the best because you're worthy. You deserve the best. Number three, God promises to curse shallow worship. From verses 12 through 14, what you do matters, how you do it matters. If you read Isaiah chapter one, we don't have time tonight, but if you read that chapter, the Israelites were bringing the right offerings. They were bringing the cream of the crop. They were keeping the Sabbath and they were doing all of that. God said, I don't want it. I don't want any of it because their heart wasn't right with God. They were doing all of these things with no heart. They were being hypocrites. They were living like pagans, but coming to God as if everything was okay. Just like we as Christians today, we live like pagans Monday through Saturday. We listen to pagan music. We watch pagan movies. We talk like the pagans and we come into church with our King James Bible, our nice dress, a nice suit, shout amen, put a little bit in the offering place, uh, offering plate. We sing the hymns and walk out thinking, well, I did good with God. I'm good with God. And we do that in a mechanical way every Sunday. This is what we do. This is where we go. This is where we sit. This is what we sing. And it becomes this mechanical, empty worship. God's not in that either. You say, but, but, but we have the, the right music and we have the right uh, atmosphere of reverence and all of that. And we have the right Bible and we have the right convictions, but there's no heart. Listen, how, how do you expect God to receive your worship when you, you're arguing with your wife all week long? bitterness and anger, you come into church as if everything's going to be okay. You can fool the preacher, but you cannot fool God. Do you think God will receive that worship? We have to search our hearts and ask the Lord to search our hearts because we want to make sure we're doing the right thing the right way. In fact, in Malachi 1 verse 10, the Bible says, who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? God says, you might as well just shut the door on the temple worship on this worthless hypocritical worship. It's not, I don't accept this. Close down shop. Again, not everything that is offered to God as worship is accepted by God as worship. I believe there are many churches across America that the lights are on. There's people inside. But over the top of that church, you might as well have written Ichabod. The glory is departing. Cold, lifeless. I mean, not even on life support, lifeless. Just going through mechanical motions. In verse 12, the Bible says, but ye have profaned it in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even his meat is contemptible. Meaning to bring these offerings, it's loathsome. We hate doing this. Look at verse 13. He said also, behold, what a wariness is it. Again, these are the kind of people that they're so selfish, they're insincere. And what happens, they come to church, they say church is boring. Or they open their Bible and they're just like, this is boring. What a wariness is it? And it's interesting. God says this hollow, lifeless, hypocritical worship. I don't like it. You don't even like it yourself. Your heart's not right. Your heart's not in it. And you think it's a burden. It's wearisome. That's the way it works. When we go down the road of just, well, this is what we have to do. This is why we have to do it. And we are lifeless. Crack open our Bible to read in the morning just to check a box. 
not because we sincerely need to hear from God. So G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, I am more afraid of profanity of the sanctuary than I am of the profanity of the street. Profanity is the idea of taking something that should have honor and treating it as if it's common. Just run of the mill. Here we go again. Casual worship. Not just carnal worship, but dead mechanical worship. That displeases God too. And again, worship must cost us something. The thing that really pleases the Lord is not so much the gift or the offering, but it's understanding the cost to the person who's offering it. And we know this because of the story of Jesus when he's looking at the treasury, when he sees all the rich people coming and putting in their offerings in the treasury, and he sees that widow with two mites, not even worth a penny, and she puts her two mites in, and she's, he says she's cast in more than they all. Now, mathematically, we know that's not what he was going for. But he's saying if you, if you literally calculated all of the offerings that the rich people, the middle class, and everywhere in between, what they gave, and you compared it to what she gave, she gave more because of what it cost her. That was all that she had. In fact, she didn't really even have it, right, Pastor Dalzell? She gave out of her need. But she said, Lord, you're worthy. You are more worthy than these needs in my life. Our Lord commended her and said she gave more than they all. It's almost as if God wants us to surrender all to him, huh? It's almost as if we have to be willing, ready and willing. Say, Lord, it's all for you. Not just my possessions, but all of me. Story is told of little Bobby Moffat in England many years ago as the offering was being passed around. He asked him to put the offering plate on the floor and he got on the offering plate and stood to symbolize that he was offering himself to the Lord. And he grew up to be Robert Moffat, pioneer missionary in Africa, saw many churches established, many souls saved, pioneer and work for God. And it started by him giving himself to the Lord. Tonight, God wants us to offer, God wants us to give, God wants us to worship, but it starts with ourselves, our hearts. Don't just go through the motions, don't be content. Don't let yourself become verse 13, verse 12 and 13, where it's contemptible, it's burdensome, it's a weariness to have to worship God. And you know what? If we're being honest, we've all been tempted to drift there. I can tell you, even being in ministry, it's my job to read the Bible and pray. And the scariest thought I have is that it becomes mechanical. It becomes just, I have to do this instead of I get to do this. And so tonight, I want to encourage you with one last thought. What are you offering up to a holy God? Start with your heart. But understand this truth. God will not go without worship. Look at verse 11. He says, For from the rising of the sun, even from the going down of the same, my name shall be great. Listen, my name will be great. Don't worry about me, God says. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. Look at verse number 13. He said also, behold, what a weariness is it, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. God will not go without worship. And perhaps what Malachi is doing here is he's pointing to centuries, millennia in the future to the coming kingdom. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ returns, there will be true worship all over this earth. Praise the Lord for that. There'll be perfect justice, perfect righteousness, and perfect worship 
of our great king. God will not go without worship. And so you might as well start now. You might as well start practicing now. You might as well get your heart in tune now and say, Lord, you're worthy. Lord, thank you that you love me in an unconditional covenantal way. Lord, I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I want to claim you as my great and mighty king. And I want to give you the very best. Could we ask the Lord to examine our hearts, search our hearts, and search out those areas that maybe we've been holding back on him? Re-examine our worship, re-examine our service that we're not just doing the right thing, but we're doing it the right way. David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise.